everybody. Welcome to the Internet of Things podcast. I am your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and this is your co-host, Kevin Tofel. And this week, we have a great show for you. We're going to talk about companies holding devices hostage, Ooh. ring raising a lot of money, new lights from Philips Hue, our review of the stack lights, and Miracle Grow's brand new Internet of Yard platform. <laughs> Internet of Plants. That sounds way better. Yes, so. I agree. And our guest this week is uh, the Senior v- Vice President of Digital Payments and Labs at MasterCard. And we're going to talk about putting payment capabilities into clothing, rings, and even golf gloves. So stay mm. tuned. All right, Kevin, let's talk about what happened with Nest this week. So mm. last week, we talked about their brand new features, which we were in solid, yay, agreement yeah, with. we were happy. But turns out that when Nest introduced those new features, one of which used your smartphone's location to help calibrate your Nest so it knew if you were away from your home or not, and the other was actually so you could share your Nest app with other people in your family without sharing the password. So when they had launched those features, Nest also had to change and update their terms of service and privacy policies to mm-hmm. because they're collecting new information and sharing it with new people. So when they did that, though, they basically put a, a note in the app when you opened your app and when other people opened their apps, they discovered that they had two choices. <laughs> they could agree to nest new privacy terms and conditions or they could not. Well, actually, the second option is they can get more info about the terms of service changes, but there's no I don't accept the changes. I reject these changes and the <laughs> expansion of your data collection. Yeah. So I, I actually just installed the Nest app on a brand new phone because I've been using the Wink app on it uh, to control my Nest. And I see exactly what what I would say is a, a relatively big issue in that if folks don't want the new family accounts and HomeAway Assist... Well, that's too bad. You don't get to use your Nest at all if you don't want to. If you don't want these features, or rather, you don't have the option to say, hey, I'd rather be grandfathered under the old privacy rules and not use those features than agree to new permissions is kind of what's happening here. Yep. I'd say say there's an option that's missing. So this brings up kind of... So on Twitter, a couple of people were like, man, you're holding my Nest hostage. And I actually thought back to Philips when they mm. implemented their Android update, their Android 4.0 update for the Hue app. They they had messed up a little bit in their implementation of the permissions on the, the app. app. Permissions, yeah, right. the app permissions. And so basically, if people didn't agree to like share their photo stream and share, I'm trying to remember location, and also uh, just access to media and files on the device. That's it. Yes. If they didn't agree to that, the app just closed and you yeah. couldn't use it. And, and, it, and it, it, it wasn't even you could accept two out of the three or one out of the three and keep using your app. You just couldn't use the app. You had to accept it all or nothing. And people were pretty mm. hacked about that. Now, Philips did issue an update on March 3rd. So now they're doing their permissions correctly and mm-hmm. you can pick and choose what you want to share. And now you can use the app. But... This is a little different, though. This, Yeah, the Nest issue is different. But the the issue is, and this points to an issue that Kevin and I were talking about before the show, which is, my gosh, we have these physical devices, and we have a rubric for kind of upgrading permissions on software that says, hey, you can take it or leave it. Mm-hmm. But with a physical device that's installed in your 
in your home, like on your wall or in your light sockets, you really don't have much of an option to take it or leave it. Short of ripping out a piece of hardware and replacing it with something that's comparable, better, worse, whatever you decide. And that's obviously not ideal. Exactly. So one was a mistake. One is intentional, but it's not intentional in some like, we're going to start sucking all of your data out kind of way. But I guess there's nothing to say that they couldn't do that. I mean, I don't know what Nest is going to do here, if anything. But if I were them, what I would do is keep the old terms of service for any and also implement app permissions to use these features. And if people say, no, I don't want to use these features, meaning, you know, permissions, I don't want to give permission to my location, etc., then just let them stay under the old terms of service because they're using Nest as it was under that terms of service. And therefore, if you accept the app permissions to use the new features, then you have to, by default, agree to the new terms of service for those features. There's nothing on the software side in terms of the permissions, the app permissions, to help mitigate this right now. And I should say, and most of these companies would say this too, is they built, most connected hardware companies build their devices so they will still work even if the app is gone or unsupported. So your Nest thermostat will still you can still control it from the wall. We're just talking about mm-hmm. being able to control it from the app. Right. And in the case of the Philips Hue lights, even if you didn't have it on the app, you could still turn it on and off from a light switch. And and I should mention, as I said, I did not have the Nest app installed on this new phone. I did have the Wink app, and that still works perfectly fine with the Nest so if I want to use my phone to control the temperature, for example. So I guess you could there, – there's a workaround if you don't want to accept the new privacy terms and conditions possibly by going through another another hub another, another app yeah but that feels like maybe a loophole that might get closed <laughs> yeah it's, it's very possible it's very possible i don't know how long that may or may not last i haven't tried with the amazon echo to see if i can still do things as well so really nest needs to own and fix this issue or address this issue and i think it's it's probably relevant for everyone in this industry to start thinking about that because People feel a sense of ownership to these devices, and they should. They, absolutely. I was just going to say, they bought them, they installed them, they're physically attached to their homes, for example. Yeah. Figuring out a way to gracefully, it's not even graceful degradation, it's its a yeah. graceful implementation of new features and possibly new privacy right. kind of conditions is going to be essential. Yeah, and, imagine, I was just going to say, imagine, we're talking about the home, but think of all the other connected devices. Imagine if your car got new terms of service because of some maybe new GPS function and you didn't want to use this function. Well, you could either use the function and agree to the new terms of service or your car just stops. Your car doesn't work. I mean, that's essentially the same thing. So this brings to mind an issue that happened last year with John Deere and actually General Motors. And they were basically saying they used copyright law to argue that company or people who bought their devices couldn't modify them in ways that basically they argued that modifying their vehicles would break copyright law. And right, the software that runs inside the, the vehicles. Yes. Mm-hmm. You could still change your tires. Yep. So, and <laughs> you're not allowed. You got a flat tire, go buy a new John Deere. <laughs> and people were very upset. They said this is like the opposite of ownership. That means people no longer own their vehicles. And the Copyright Office back in November came out and said that actually, actually, you can modify your vehicle, but it's only under certain really limited conditions. So you can't violate, you know, Department of Transportation Mm -hmm. and EPA rules. So 
Kevin, I think you've got... This is so funny that this is coming up now because just over the weekend, um, and this is not the first time I've done this, this is the second time I've done this, but just over the weekend, I bought a box that I connected to the engine of my 2016 Golf RW, uh, I'm sorry, Golf R, and it basically alters how the engine works because it sends different signals to the ECU or engine control unit. So I'm getting like an extra 45 horsepower, an extra couple PSIs of boost from the turbo. And I mean, I'm having fun with it. It's it's fun to drive, not funner to drive, if that makes sense. If I break any laws speeding, that's, you know, whether I have that box in there or not, that's on me. But, you know, have I violated any copyright laws now because I don't own the software in the engine control unit? Uh, that's a VW thing, even though I own the car. What do we own is, is really a good question. And what don't we own? Yes. So, and especially as more features are enabled by software. Yep. So that is, Ugh, what a yeah, mess. It is a mess. And we've, we've only come so far on this. And I think both, like we said, the companies building these devices are going to have to think about this, but then we might also have some, some lawsuits to look forward to. Mm-hmm. Oh, tough okay, topic. so I probably shouldn't have mentioned this on air then because you probably will have lawsuits over this. <laughs> I didn't change anything in my car, honest. All right. Kevin is on the straight and narrow. Um, <laughs> do you want me to have that taken out? No, not at all. Absolutely not. Hey, you know, it, it's my car. If, and, you know, if I want to change something, you know, the pink color or the ECU or the radio, that's on me, I think. And yes, I'm held accountable for that if I do something illegal with the vehicle whether or not I modified it. And yes, VW can say I'm out of warranty, but that's a choice that I choose to make. Here with Ness, going back to the very original thing, right now, as it stands, people don't have a choice. They do not. So, and after spending $250 on a Ness thermostat, they might be pretty miffed. Mm -hmm. Speaking of spending money on connected devices, we have got a whole new option for people. Philips Hue has announced... New white lights. Kevin, you want to talk about these? Well, that, that doesn't really sound exciting on the surface, but it is because these are the Philips Hue white ambiance lights. Ooh la la. Basically, as I see it, these are tunable white lights, which I actually prefer in my house because I like to go from uh, different color temperatures from soft white to warm white to daylight and so on, depending on time of day and activity. And these will do that up from uh, 2200K to 6500K. So you can get all the way down to like warm yellow, all the way up to a daylight with these tunable bulbs. I do not know the cost of these yet, by the way. What's also interesting, though, is they're smart enough to adjust the shade of color temperature throughout the day, if you would like. Uh, similar to, and Stacey, I don't know if you use any apps like this, but similar to something called Flux on a Mac or G-Lux in Chrome. Uh, basically, these are software bits that remove the bluish-white light from your screen and filter it with a reddish light. And the reason being, there have been studies saying if you're looking at blue-white screens in the evening, it becomes harder to sleep. You could lose up to an hour of sleep because it stimulates the rods and cones in your eyes and so forth. So that's kind of the object here with these ambiance lights. It's a progressively changing white color based on time of day, activity, and so on. It can do that smartly or you can program it to do so. Okay. And if you don't want these, they still make the Hue Lux, which are just dimmable white lights. Yes. Yes. And I'm trying to think... I'm looking for the price to see if there is a price here. I couldn't find one. Um, 
Yeah. They were just announced, uh, I'd say, a day ago. So, you know, information is still trickling out. And I looked at those Hue Lux bulbs that are dimmable, but I really like tunable. It's just a personal preference, and uh, they didn't have one up until then. So I've been using the uh, Crees and Osrams. And now there is actually, just for people who are as obsessed with lighting as I am, mm-hmm. there is the C by GE that also came out. So mm. these came out this spring as well, and you can order them. These are the, they're going to be the home kit lights and they, they have sea sleep and sea life. So one is designed, they're, they're different bulbs and for your bedroom, you're supposed to use the sea sleep lights and they're supposed to dim all the way down kind of at night mm-hmm. using the circadian rhythm from like the super bright blue daylight to the really warm yellow light. I guess that's where the sea comes from. Ah, I think it's the sleep. Oh. No, C, like the letter C. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's what I meant. There we go. C is for cookie, and that's good enough for me. Yeah. yeah. C. Yeah. <laughs> Today's show is brought to you by the letter C. <laughs> and the number four, just because. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that is okay. Okay, so back to back to lights. I can't I can't talk about these jokes right now. I'm talking about lights. Sorry. Uh, so the starter pack is fifty dollars, and that includes Two of each light bulbs, and I believe a hub. Two of each? Two of each, which is that's really a, cheap. That, that's oh, a good deal. Well, the, that's the introductory price. The regular price is $70. So it's still a good deal. If you want these, perhaps buy them now, uh, because it is a good deal. That's a good deal for circadian rhythm lights. I might do this, although I don't think they work with my wink. They might. Uh, they might not. I Let's don't know. See. Let's see if they work with wink, because... They're going to be HomeKit compatible. Bleh. And Android is coming soon. They don't. You can't even install the app on Android. Well, not going to work for me then. Not going to work for you. Not going to happen. So that's sorry. That's okay. But for other gadgets that you may want to buy, we've got some exciting news for you. Oh, wait. This C by GE bulbs are connected via Bluetooth to your mobile app. Ah, uh, so it's phone controlled. It is phone controlled. I could use them if there was an Android app. Well, there's one coming. Okay. I'll so wait. It could happen. I'll wait. So knowing that, we've got two two options in the lighting category for you there. I am testing a group of bulbs called the Stack Lights. And these guys are really cool. I have been really excited about them, and I've been living them for like a week and a half now. Um, part of that time I was out of town, so... My review is a little, you're going to hear more about them as I live more with them because they also learn. So these lights, the cool thing about them is they want to be responsive as opposed to programmed. So they have motion sensors and ambient light sensors in them. And the awesome part about them is they are very responsive. Unlike mm-hmm. with my, when I was testing Zuli, the, the connected home plugs, Mm-hmm. You would walk into the room and it would be like a little, you'd walk halfway into the room sometimes and the light still wouldn't go on. Mm. Um, and that was just a little By then you probably tripped over the coffee table or exactly. something. Exactly. Yeah. But here, the second you walk under them, boom, the lights turn on. Mm. And I found in the bedroom, this is amazing. Um, so I installed lights in the bedroom, my bedroom, and the little, I'm going to call it the potty room. I don't know what the graceful way of calling this room is, but it's like a bathroom just the room with the toilet in our master bathroom. So I installed one in there and then I installed one or I installed several in the hallway right outside, you know, our bedrooms. So 
nice use cases there. They automatically have a circadian rhythm setting. So Hmm. when I walk in, in the middle of the day, they're wherever they are in their circadian rhythm setting, I'm getting that kind of light. They have a a wake up alarm function. So it can like gradually brighten the room. I'm trying to think of what all they, they have a lot of really cool things. What I've discovered though, is living with motion sensors (laughs) is a little bit hard. (laughs) It works really well in like the tiny little bathroom. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work as well in the hallway because when we get near the hallway, the lights turn on like even at night and in their nighttime mode is kind of nice. They have a sleep mode where you can put the lights into, they'll either be off or you can make them glow at like 5%. Hmm. So you always have almost like an ambient light. Yes. But in the middle of the night, when you trigger the hallway light, you're like, oh, it's still kind of bright. Mm-hmm. And then it times out. So I have mine set out to time out at like one minute because that's a lot of light otherwise. And so I guess there's a lot, there's a learning curve to using them, but they're the closest I have so far to magic. And I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. that with some software tweaks, they're going to be almost as intuitive as they want them to be to use. Hmm. Interesting. So, and as I'm looking at the, at the bulbs on the stack lighting.com site, uh, it looks like you do need a hub, which uses Zigbee for mesh networking all the lights together. Wish it didn't have its own hub, but they look pretty smart. They, they are super on their own, so to speak, you know, no programming required as you had alluded to. Yes. Now I do. I mean, like, again, there's some things I wish, like I wish I could put the whole house to sleep all at once when I hit, but instead you have to go room by room and put it to sleep. Hmm. Which is kind of like, eh. I'm like, when I lock down for the night, boom, I want it all locked down. So they don't have, there is an app though, right? Oh yeah, there's an app. It's just, But it doesn't have like an all off or... Yes, it does hmm. not have, it does not have that. Everything's controlled by the room. And I could see like, as it gets, like if I had these throughout my house, like I wouldn't want to put the whole house to sleep. Maybe if my daughter were like up in her room. Yeah, or somebody wakes up in the middle of the night, it senses it, but it says, oh, I'm in all off mode. I can't turn on now. Yes. So yeah. there, I mean, there are still things, but it is the most intuitive so far. And the, the promise is that these will learn your kind of habits. I haven't, I feel like I haven't used them long enough to really learn, like have them start understanding like when I'm doing things, mm-hmm. but I'm eager to see what that looks like. Now, these are $60 a bulb. Uh, do you see what the starter pack is? Believe it's one fifty because it includes the hub. And it's two, two bulbs plus the hub. Okay, yeah, these are not cheap. These are and they're BR thirties. I was I was just gonna say they're they're down lights. These are BR thirties. They're not you know like uh, standard bulbs, which yeah. they say are coming soon. They are. They launched those at CES, and the cool thing about those is how do you get a motion sensor to like work through a lamp? You know, a mm-hmm. lampshade. Lampshade, no. Mm-hmm. How do you get an ambient light sensor? And I should say the ambient light sensor is awesome because it does. It pulls some of my lights don't turn on when like the the windows are open. So if, hmm. if the blinds are open and I walk into my bedroom, only like one of the lights that is kind of further away from all the light from my windows, only hmm. that one turns on. So it's kind of cool. You're like, Haha. yeah, that's why turn on the light that when you already have light in that room, that area. Yeah. So interesting. I'm liking these lights. I feel like I'm going to live it. They, oh, I should also say they integrate with Nest. So their motion sensor can talk to Nest and be like, hey, someone's still in the house. Don't turn off the air conditioning. 
Um, and then they also integrate with if this and that. So I can trigger them via the Amazon Echo. So all of that works seamlessly hmm. and is super fun. Has potential. I like it. It does. It's going to be good. So those are the stack lights. If you're a lighting freak like myself, <laughs> I would say go out and buy some and start playing with them. You're going to need probably a lot, uh, which is kind of an investment. And mm -hmm. if you want to wait like another couple of weeks or a month or so, I bet I could tell you like, yes, they are significantly better. Um, so stay tuned. We have money connected doorbell news. You're like yes. money. Well, and it's all related. It is ring. The connected doorbell maker has raised $61 million in a series C round. So that's a third round of funding for them. And they raised it from Kleiner Perkins. And they also launched a brand new doorbell. And hmm. this one is a slightly higher end doorbell. It's instead of costing $200, this one costs $250. This is the Ring Video Doorbell Pro. It has 1080p HD as opposed to 720. So a little higher high def. Mm -hmm. And it also is all wired. So it has a slimmer profile in the, the old ring. I guess we'll call it the $200 ring. The original ring. The original. <laughs> well, it's not the original ring. Oh. So ring used to be known as doorbot. And oh. that was, that was not a great product, but ring improved on it significantly. Apparently raised a lot of money. Prior to this, they had raised a 20, I want to say it was 28 million, but maybe it was $24 million round led by Richard Branson. The point is, they have money. They have a new doorbell. I'm kind of excited about it because I love my video doorbells. Yeah. It's not quite as wide as the old one? Oh, yes. I well, is, no, no. I'm asking the question because the old one would not fit on my door. Right. This one is a much slimmer. They used because it doesn't have batteries. So you do have to wire mm -hmm. it in. Mm -hmm. But you take out the battery. And then they also use components for mobile phones as opposed to, I guess, traditional electronics components. Mm -hmm. So the whole profile is much slimmer. Uh, I can't wait to see it because maybe I can fit it in my door. Maybe. I was going to try to get you. Oh, and they also have interchangeable faceplates for people who care about the color of their doorbell, which actually is me. You could change it every day of the week. Very cool. You could. It's like a <laughs> Fitbit band. So that is, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's exciting. Yeah. I, I love doorbells. I love, <laughs> and I, lights. I, doorbells and lights. I'm so practical. <laughs> so that's ring. So good on them. And. Uh, connected yard. The connected yard. Which is not something I ever thought we'd be talking about all that much, but yeah, you know, we have I, to. I don't have a yard, but people really, really, uh -huh. really care about this stuff. We get a lot of actually inbound requests to test sprinklers, and mm -hmm. I'm still working out how we're supposed to do that. So stay tuned, because I do want to get some of those on the show and be like, hey, this is better than that one. But connected yard, you want to talk about Miracle Grow, Scott's Miracle Grow. Yes, Scott's Miracle Grow. They have a they've introduced a platform called the Connected Yard Platform. Actually, I think it's called Grow, G R O. It's a platform to basically allow lots of different I'll say mostly smart water type controllers uh, such as those from Blossom, Ratio, Green IQ, Lono. Oh, it's soil sensor too, Parrot, PlantLink. So, it's basically a platform to get all these sensors and devices talking to each other. Which is interesting, I mean, because all these things would be tied together. Soil, moisture, for example, would be interesting to a sprinkler, for example. So connecting all these things in one piece makes sense to me. And it makes sense that Scott's Miracle Grow would be one of the companies to do so. I don't think we have any other information. I don't know when the, the platform is actually launching or has it launched. 
Um, yeah, this, this launched, well, this launched, the news of the platform launched in like four, four days ago. So it'll okay. be last week. I think of it like a health kit for yards because mm, um, yeah. all the sensor data is going to go in and tie in with weather data. So basically you're like, Hey, water me yard. Um, mm-hmm. It's also kind of promising because if this will actuate and it sounds like it will, it will be able to set some of these things off because Braccio, for example, is controlled controls your irrigation. So mm-hmm. if a soil sensor says I'm so mm-hmm. parched, it could be like, Oh, I will turn on the water. And because it integrates local weather data, it mm-hmm. may also be like, if you can hold out for just a little longer, it's going to rain. Um, and this is really promising for mm-hmm. drought areas, drought stricken areas, and also takes the idea just of IoT stuff providing information and starts making it, taking it and letting it, letting the devices act and mm-hmm. even do so without human intervention. And, and Scott's has long had lawn care services to, that will that people will come out and evaluate your soil and and so on uh, your lawn and you know they'll recommend certain fertile fertilizers and certain cycles of, of fertilization and so on so in a sense it could even help the company itself in terms of that but instead of just having one person come out one time and evaluate your lawn this is like a constant evaluation which is kind of neat it's a huge stream of data and yeah I'm going to guess that they're going to let you know the proper times to apply the proper Scott's, you know, fertilizer and or plant food. And I'd be shocked if they didn't. Yes. I'd be shocked if they didn't. (laughs) So for them, this is possibly a service revenue play. So sending our technicians out to you, but it could also be a really useful way to gather data to help sell more of their products, which is, I got to say, a really good way for a big company to be like, Hey, here's how an open platform could benefit us. Mm -hmm. So, yay, Scott's. Very cool. Super cool. All right. And I was at South by Southwest and I spent a lot of time talking to companies and I'm just trying to think about the coolest things I saw. I'm going to give you one and then the rest I'll have to think about and tell you about next show. But I did see a company called Bernoulli. And if you are interested in cocktails like myself, Hmm. This is really a neat idea. This is going to be launched. Well, it is launched now. And what these are, are Bluetooth-based bottle toppers for your bar. So your your alcohol collection. You mm-hmm. can buy eight of them for $300. I know it's kind of expensive, but wait. Whoa. I'm waiting. So what it does, you stick these on, you screw these onto the top of your like bottles of gin and whiskey and whatnot. You go to the app and you're like, I have the following things in my bar and it Uh says here are the drinks you can make with that and then you're like i would like to make this one and then you pour the drink when you're pouring the alcohol in it's going to actually stop the flow of liquid when it reaches the amount specified by the app clever and i saw it and it works i was actually that was like the most magical part so the top the bottle you want lights up it's like, oh, this is the gin. And then, I mean, you could have your child making you these cocktails. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> not, not in my state. <laughs> All right, fine. But I get your... I You're get already your breaking the law in your car. I figured, <laughs> That's you know... <laughs> That's true. And they won't catch me. So I don't care. Go ahead, kids. Make the drinks for daddy. <laughs> daddy needs a martini. So I actually thought this was... I Because I've played with a lot of robotic bartending yeah. devices. Yeah. And those are kind of messy. Because you've got to, you've got to stick the bottles back there and they seem great for like a professional use, 
but you stick the bottles back there and there are tubes running into them. And mm. it's a similar idea, only that sucks up all the moisture. And then you've got to clean all those tubes. And I don't know when you're dealing with like alcohol and mixers, we're talking about, you know, stickiness. So I was like, Ugh, that seems like a lot of work. But and, this, and those are a lot of money. This is actually, relatively speaking, much cheaper. And it really doesn't change how you make a drink today, essentially, other than doing the measuring and the recipe for you. So it's not like there's any convoluted hardware involved, right? Exactly. There's there's just the bottle top. There are no hubs, Kevin. No hubs. Good. They're not Wi-Fi connected bottle tops. Good. So you- Actually, how are they connected? Bluetooth. They connect ah. to the, the app. Got it. Makes sense. Makes so, sense. Bluetooth connected bottle tops by Bernoulli. Like it's going so, on my Christmas list. Dude, there you go. Yeah, they'll, they'll be out by, <laughs> presumably by then. That's what they said. We'll see. Okay. So keep an eye out. All right. Well, now we will move on to our guest, who is Sherry Heymond, who is an SVP of digital payments and labs at MasterCard. And we are going to talk about the future of how you will pay for things. Dun, dun, dun. Stay tuned. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and my guest today is Sherry Heymond. She's an SVP of Digital Payments and Labs at MasterCard. Hi Sherry, thanks for joining us today. Hi Stacey, thanks so much for having me. I am super excited about this because I hate grabbing my wallet out, and you guys have, you have this new, I guess, we'll call it a thing coming for lack of a better word with the Arnold Palmer invitational golf tournament. And you guys have put, you've worked with a partner to embed payment technology into a golf glove, which I think is kind of fun. You can wave your hand to pay for refreshments on the golf course. Can you do other things with it? Sure. I mean, we think that's probably the, you know, the the most prominent um, use case um, for this. So with the golf club, is actually a proof of concept. Um, it's something that we're able to enable through a broader program that we have called Commerce for Every Device. So what that program allows us to do is, in a really simple, easy, and secure way, um, make it possible for all kinds of different devices, wearables, jewelry, clothing, for the manufacturers of those you know, items to connect with our platform and have the consumer that's using that device or gadget or clothing or wearable um, ask to have their payment credentials, you know, their MasterCard payment credentials, securely put onto that device and made available for that device to use. And so, um, although, you know, not in production, and we did do this kind of as a, a special um, bespoke um, sort of thing for the Arnold Palmer Invitational, it is an example of what can be done with our platform. So in this case, it's a Callaway golf glove, and there's a payment chip in the glove that connects via Bluetooth to an app on a phone, and you can scan your card credentials, you know, through the app securely into the phone, you know, at which point the app basically makes an API called a MasterCard. We let the issuer know that you want to put your credential onto the device through a a methodology we have, we make sure with the issuer that you are you, and then we make that payment credential available in a tokenized way. So we don't make the real credential available, but instead a surrogate credential together with secure cryptographic keys 
that makes sure that each transaction is safe and secure and unique. It uses the same technology as EMV chip cards. Okay. So that was, that was like everything I needed to know. Except, <laughs> so this is a prototype glove. Can people actually yes. use it? Well, the people at, at the API um, will be able to use it, but I mean, we, we actually don't currently have plans to make this available commercially, but we'll see, well, you know, we'll gauge the interest and if Callaway or any other glove manufacturer would like to, it's, you know, it's definitely possible. As an example of, of why it's possible, you know, we've, we've announced partnerships with many other clothing, jewelry, device manufacturers, and closest to this actually is a designer named Adam Selman. Um, he's probably most famous for designing dresses for Rihanna. He does all of the costumes for her tours and stuff. Um, and he has, you know, beautiful clothes available um, at high-end stores today. And he just recently did a collaboration with Nordstrom's as well. We worked with him to, again, make some prototypes, but later this year we will be working with him to make those commercially available. Um, and the prototypes that he created included a dress, sunglasses, a handbag, and gloves. Um, so they weren't golf clubs. They were, you know, fashion, you know, winter type gloves that if in the winter you're going out in the morning, you know, you can securely put payment credentials onto your glove so that, for example, if you're in London, you can wave your hand over the turnstile at the TFL, um, magically enter into the TFL and, and be on your way with your ride. I'm liking that magical entry. Um, and you guys have a agreement, not just with some of these, well, actually, this is not a larger company, but you have an agreement with one of our favorite devices, which is Ringly, the cocktail ring that, you know, I currently wear it whenever I'm dressed up and I want to get notifications on my phone or from my phone without looking at my phone. And soon I'll be able to use it to pay for things with my MasterCard, right? That's exactly right. So we've been working with Ringly. Um, they're such a pleasure to work with. They're such a great company. And we were very lucky to, in the fall, when we announced um, this, our Commerce for Every Device program, which is the name of this program that we're, you know, using to easily connect with these device manufacturers and enable payments on the devices, Ringly was actually one of our launch partners. So we worked with Christina, she's the CEO of Ringly, and her team to actually put secure payment credentials onto Ring that we had at the show, and they actually worked. And so for me, I mean, I'm a working mom and such a simplification, you know, of my day to day that I, you know, I connect my ring in any, in the morning anyway, to my phone in the fall or, you know, later this year, let's not say the fall later this year, we'll be able to, I will also be able to securely um, transfer via a Bluetooth, you know, encrypted Bluetooth technology. Um, I'll be able to securely transfer cards, you know, accounts that I've provisioned through an app on my phone to my Ringly ring. And then when I'm, you know, off on my day, I'll be able to, you know, again, later this year, tap my ring at Starbucks when I'm getting my coffee, I'll be able to tap my ring on a New York City cab, you know, when I'm, you know, running between meetings, for example, Um, and it'll just make my life easier and more seamless with something that's already functional and beautiful. We're working with Ringly. It's a great example of how we're adding payment functionality to something that is already um, very useful to the consumer. And so all it needs is to have an NF- NFC and Bluetooth chip in it for it to work? Pretty much. I mean, we, yes. I mean, the, the underlying technology is um, a chip that's enabled with NFC and then also Bluetooth. However, the there's obviously an integration that happens between either the device manufacturer or an enabler that they're working with. 
So we're working with various enablers, including NXP, Qualcomm, and COIN. There's several others that have not been announced yet who are going to be integrating with our system so that the device manufacturer doesn't necessarily have to integrate directly with us. Got it. Now, so let's let's take this back a couple steps. And as like a normal person who's going about their day ordering a coffee, what does the process look like? I wave it. I, I wave my hand. Can I buy like I don't know a stereo with this, or how does? <laughs> what are the limits to my my newfound payment power? Sure. So, in fact, um, this is actually all of this technology is actually available in market today. You know, so for many years, we've had available, you know, not only in the United States, but globally, um, what's called MasterCard contactless technology. It's built on NFC technology, which actually is underpinned by the same technology that powers EMV chip cards. You know, it's available at at more than 4 million payment terminals globally. Um, So each country has its own specific limits of how much you can, what, what the amount of the transaction you can complete using contactless functionality without having an additional cardholder verification. So here's what I mean. In the United States, there's a $50 contactless limit. That means that up to $50, you can do a, tra- um, a contactless transaction without having to do an additional thing like provide a signature after the fact, on credit, that is. And so you know, if you wanted to actually buy a stereo or a TV, for example, at Best Buy, obviously that's going to be over $50. In that case, you would tap your ring um, and then it would, at the merchant's terminal would prompt you for a signature after the fact. I do this actually every week with, you know, with either Apple Pay or Samsung Pay. I use both um, at, at, at Whole Foods every weekend. There you go. So let, let's think about this because I'm very curious about the world, the future of payments, because right now I can pay with my phone. So I'm topping it down. I've got my ring ringly now. Maybe I've got some crazy handbag that also has this or a key fob with payment technology in it. So I guess, is it oversaturation or how do you view like the, the user going through their day in choosing these things, thinking about how to make their payments? Does it just become like whatever I is convenient? Exactly. So, Stacey, you you hit the nail on the head. So, we don't necessarily think that there's going to be a winner here. You know, people have individual tastes, and we're in a world where, you know, people expect customization and personalization, and they want to be able to do things like pay with whatever is most accessible or convenient or attractive to them. Just like, you know, you pick your clothes every day and you pick your shoes, and there's, you know, millions and millions of choices for those things. There will probably be many, many choices for what object you know you enable for payment, and I think different ways to pay are going to be more prevalent for different use cases, right? So everything is contextual and use case appropriate. Um, you know, you won't be using a, a ring to tap and pay necessarily at a, a restaurant. It's possible, but I, I wouldn't necessarily think that that's the go-to thing for a restaurant. Or, for example, if you're at a car dealership and you're buying a car, or or if even you're at a high-end luxury retailer where there's you know a some sort of very hands-on experience, you may not be. You're not in a rush. You're not. It's not giving you that kind of same like instant gratification, tap and go, quick convenience as you might expect for transit or for 
parking or for a quick service restaurant or, you know, again, these, these things are use case dependent. And I think there's going to be many different payment options that are all safe and secure that work together to make payments seamless and, you know, simple and secure for the consumer. Got it. Okay. And that, that makes total sense. I'm trying to imagine buying a car on credit and I'm like, wow, I need a bigger credit line. So, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> or a really terrible car. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> with the idea of, you mentioned security. So, so let's talk about the protections that are given to the consumer when they do this, because I can think of a couple things. There's obviously like, oh my God, my payment information is going through the air. And we talked about how that's not actually your payment information. That's a token. So yay. But then there's also worries about, you know, NFC sniff or RFID sniffing. There's probably worries about people stealing your ring or gloves. I mean, I lose my gloves all the time. So how do you deal with those kind of issues? So they're each different. I'll take them one at a time. So with the sniffing, well, as you mentioned already, it is tokenized. So the great thing about a token is that it's not only a surrogate value and it doesn't only have, you know, a unique code, you know, cryptographic keys that create a unique code, but we also lock lock that token down by channel, you know, and in some cases by merchant. So here's what I mean. If I have a token available on my Ringly Ring, there's some specific domain controls that are around that token that token's only going to be able to be used in contactless locations coming from the device. So if someone were to sniff it and put it on white plastic, for example, and swipe it at the point of sale, MasterCard would know in the back end that that transaction, you know, that that credential rather had been compromised and we would not allow that transaction to go through. So because of these domain controls, it becomes, you know, much more secure because even if a token is, Stolen, and we do assume that the hackers are going to hack and that there, there will be data compromises. So the whole purpose of tokenization was to make sure that the data, if it, was comp- if it were to be compromised, was useless. Right. And, that's what we've, and that's what we've accomplished with the tokenization technology. Okay, awesome. And then about like someone just grabbing my, my gloves or less likely my ring? Well... I think it's going to be different depending on the device. So this is like a multi-layered answer, but I'll try to make it simple. So some wearables or jewelry or, for example, you know, some devices that, you know, we're talking about right now will only work if they're tethered to your phone. This may be because, for example, with Ringly, the whole point of a Ringly ring is that it's only active if it's connected to your phone because its purpose, main purpose, is to give you notifications of things that are happening on your device. And so with the Ringly Ring, I expect that payments functionality will only be enabled if there is that tether, if you're in close proximity to your phone. So if someone grabbed your ring and ran, you know, a mile away and then went to use it at, you know, the local whatever, you know, store that had a contactless terminal, it wouldn't work. There's other examples like fitness bands that may have built-in persistent authentication technology. So, for example, with NIMI, you authenticate once in the morning, you put your NIMI band on, you know, so that you're able then to use it for access to get into your workplace or into your computer or things like that. Mm-hmm. Like, if, you know, the, there's something in that device called persistent authentication, and if it's attached to your skin and it reads your you know, your biometric signals and it knows that it's still on your hand and that that's your hand. It knows that that's the magic of the NIMI band. 
it will know to only enable payment functionality when that persistent authentication exists, and it won't work otherwise. Now, again, I'm giving different examples because each of these wearables will employ kind of a different methodology for securing the payment. There are some examples, though, where there won't be persistent authentication and it won't require a tether. You know, and in that instance, we're relying on the fact that it is um, tokenized, that there are limits for what you can do without additional cardholder verification. And of course, with MasterCard, there's always zero liability protection. So, you know, it's something that we have as a benefit for our cardholders globally. And today, for example, if your physical card is lost or stolen, which it very well could be, this happens all the time, you as a cardholder are not responsible for the trans- any transaction that happens you know, after it's lost or stolen so long as you're reported in a reasonable amount of time. So there are going to still be those use cases. And again, we, I think there'll be less and less as the technology gets better and better. And we are encouraging all the wearables, you know, and, you know, jewelry, et cetera, manufacturers to build in some kind of additional security protection. But with tokenization and zero liability protections, consumers can rest easy that they won't be responsible for fraud. Awesome. Yes. My credit card does get stolen like at least once a year. I don't blame y'all. And I appreciate that MasterCard and also Visa. Very quick to let me know. Great, great (laughs) protection. So now can I pay with this, with these types of devices at any contactless payment place or do I have to? Okay. It, it kind of sounded like there were side deals that had to happen and it's basically. No, not at all. Boom. And not at all. So the, the merchant, all the merchant has to do is actually turn on con- the contactless functionality. So yeah. the large majority, so north of 90%, I don't know the exact number, but more than 90% of terminals, new terminals that are shipping today are shipping with NFC technology in there already. Because again, I, as I mentioned before, it's based on the same technology that powers EMV. Okay. And so and that's as chip and the pen terminal... For- and exactly for everyone who doesn't so, who's not speaking math or speaking credit cards that's right and so we you know we're in the midst of a liability of a of a rather a, a shift we're, we're in the midst of a shift to migrate terminals in the united states for security reasons you know from just magnetic stripe to also be emv chip and pin and as that happens and merch or merchants go through their regular terminal replacement cycle you know, we expect that most of the terminals will come ready-made with this NFC functionality. So all the merchant has to do is turn it on. Nice. And I can be walking through paying with waves of my hand, with nods of my head, who knows? Even perhaps I have to ask because I just saw that Amazon is talking about letting people pay with the selfie. And I know that MasterCard introduced this kind of concept. I don't think it's real yet, but I could be wrong. Where are you guys going next? So we, we actually, so selfie pay um, is something that we've been talking about actually since last year. So I was actually kind of surprised to see that Amazon was introducing it as a new concept. But what we're making available are APIs that are going to be integrated into MasterPass. So MasterPass is MasterCard's digital wallet services platform. We have acceptance at, you know, several hundred thousand merchant locations already you know, with many more to come. And we, so different from all the other platforms and our competitors, what MasterPass does is it allows our banks to integrate payment functionality into their own mobile banking app or in a separate bank-owned app. So there's many people that'll 
you know, choose to pay with Apple Pay or Samsung Pay or Android Pay or with some of these devices. There's also people that want to get these sorts of services from their bank. And so MasterPass allows the bank to add payments capability to something that a consumer is already used to signing on to and they trust and love, which is their online banking. So, for example, Citi, um, which one is one of MasterCard's um, you know, biggest customers, has a, has a MasterPass wallet. It's the CityPay MasterPass wallet. And use it, you can use it today at merchants like J.Crew and Wayfair. And, you know, you could use it at many merchants today that are already live with MasterPass, you know, with many more to come later this year, including some that we've announced like JetBlue and Walmart. And you use it just by, you know, lo- basically logging into your online banking credentials. So Selfie Pay is going to be integrated as an authentication mechanism into MasterPass. So we're going to be making Selfie Pay available via the MasterPass APIs so that if a bank, you know, in, as they're integrating with MasterPass, if a bank chooses to make this authentication mechanism available, they can make it, av- it available just by, you know, accessing the, you know, that part of the SDK you know, that we're making available for, for banks like Citi. Awesome. So I could pay with my fingers. I could pay with my face. It's going to be great. Exactly. <laughs> Final question for you. Where would you like to see contactless payment or easier payments in you, like maybe it's your own life or where do you think you could have like the greatest impact? I'm trying to think of like sort of my car might be really interesting because I'm in Texas and I spend a lot of time in it, but I, I don't know. Sure. So yeah, we're working. I mean, this is, this is a super exciting area um, to work in. I think I have the best job in the world because they're literally like, Sherry, go out and exactly what you said, figure out what people, you know, will want to do, not only from a contactless standpoint, but also from kind of a more embedded commerce, seamless commerce experiences, not only um, tap and pay, but also, you know, using apps and other things like that. And so we are actively working on, you know, together with partners, most of which have not been announced, most of whom have not been announced yet, but we are actively working on, use cases um, and building out an ecosystem for experiences in connected car, connected home, um, really bring, pushing forward what the retail experience is going to look like. Um, and I'm, I don't want to say too much because I don't want to give it away, but you know, you can, you could definitely look forward to a bunch of great, you know, not only pilots, but you know, announcements um, and demonstrations later this year of where we think we're going in each of these areas. Okay. I will have to stay tuned, it sounds like. Well, Sherry, thanks so much for coming on the podcast this week. Thank you so much for having me, Stacey. That concludes this week's show, and thanks for listening to the Internet of Things podcast. 